Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Cristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. My guest today is Leslie Browning. Leslie is a poet, publisher, novelist, and soon-to-be memoirist with the publication of her newest book. It's entitled To Lose the Madness, Field Notes on Trauma, Loss, and Radical Authenticity. Leslie is also a grieving mother who miscarried twins in 2015. This loss served as a cracking open point, leading to months of struggle into and through childhood traumas, physical health crises, and mental illness. To Lose the Madness is a personal offering and a practice in being willing to speak out about what so often goes underground and secreted away. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. This might be a strange question to start with, but when it comes to the aspects of your life that you chronicle in this new book, how do you think of yourself in relationship to what you've experienced? Has some of what you've gone through in terms of grief and trauma and mental illness become part of your identity? I mean, that's actually a a great place to start because really everything I chronicle in this book is everything about my life that I tried to keep apart from my identity simply because I couldn't face it because of the overwhelming emotion. It's really about all of the things I tried to suppress, whether it was emotionally or mentally, and that were unearthed when the miscarriage happened because that was something of so much emotional agony, and I tried to push it down, and there was simply no more room in my mind to push anything down, and so it was the breaking point. So as far as I think about myself in relation to this all, it's it's everything I ran away from for 20 years, finally being faced. You know, I, I love the way you described how like the vessel was just too full, like all the things that you had pushed down, like nothing else was going in, and it was all going to come out at that point. In this place now of having thought through and talked about and now written a book about those experiences. Do you describe yourself in a certain way? Like, do you find yourself thinking I'm a grieving person or I am a survivor or am I an artist who carries with me all of these stories? I think it depends on the day. (laughs) There are some (laughs) days when I can very much transcend it into I am a survivor and I, you know, I'm a, a writer and an artist and I took something horrible that happened to me and transcended it into something, in this case, a book. Um, and then there are those days when I'm simply a grieving mother and nothing else really gets through. I've learned that grief, it doesn't go away. You can't <laughs> shake it. You can't deny it. You just kind of have to learn how to carry it. And some days it's heavy and some days it's not because, you know, some days you can be distracted by the good that's happening in your life. And some days nothing else will get through except the grief. So yeah, almost as if that all of those identities are are with you at all times. It's just a matter of contextually what's happening maybe in that day or in that moment, which of those experiences might rise more to the surface. Sounded like you had a long 
history of being able to take really painful things and push them aside and move forward in a different direction in your life. And then through this experience of the miscarriage and the cracking open, and then you take this, you write about this transformative trip you take from the East Coast to Taos, New Mexico. I'm curious in all of that, what was it like to take experiences that you'd spent so long not talking about and put them into words in this book? Um, I really put them into words to understand what happened. I'm one of those people that doesn't know necessarily what they're thinking or feeling until I write it down because everything gets so knotted in your mind. And, you know, grief is so overwhelming. It's sometimes hard to sort through exactly what you're feeling. I kept a journal during the months after the miscarriage. And really, I thought at the time it was just kind of ramblings of grief and pain that made no sense and depression. And then I went back about a year later after I kind of started to get out of the woods, so to speak. And I realized at the time, I actually wrote some pretty insightful things, even though I didn't feel like it. And I put it all together with no intention of sharing it with anyone, just as a way to put it linear in my mind. It's surreal to think about sharing it with others, and yet it's probably the most impacting thing I've ever written. I mean, the few friends and colleagues who have read it before it comes out, all of them have instantly turned around and shared their dark times with me. And there are things that I never knew about these people that I called my friends for sometimes decades. You know, They would tell me of you know their struggle with miscarriages or grief or depression. I never knew and they never knew about me because we do hide it all. So the, the book was really a process of me confronting everything I tried to run away from and then sharing it has been a process of learning that I'm not as alone as I thought. And going back to the idea of it being a personal offering, both to yourself, but also it seems like as you come forward, people who are close to you are able to come forward with the hard times and the struggles they've gone through. Exactly. It was kind of, you know, it actually, I wrote it as an essay for school and presented it for an advanced narrative nonfiction course with no intention of sharing it beyond that. And then after class, a whole classmates started coming up to me privately telling me, oh, my daughter miscarried two months ago, and she's in that phase where she can't talk about it. And she doesn't know how to process grief. Can I share your essay with her? Or my son struggled, you know, had a near suicide attempt. In your book, you talk about suicide, and can I share it with him? It was a lot of just connecting, and I didn't expect that because I was, it was very internal. It was just for me. And then I was amazed at the kind of ripple effect. Yeah, it can be sort of overwhelming to recognize how much darkness to use a maybe that's not the best word, but how much that experience of being human is really shared, even though our grief and our traumas feel so personal and so unique to us. One of the things as I read your book, and it was a huge honor for me to be able to read it before it comes out in April. So thank you for that. And one of the things that really stood out to me was this idea of denial, you know, because back in the day with our old five stages of grief theory of people going through denial and then all the way to acceptance and knowing now that grief doesn't really unfold in that sort of linear way. I've railed against and I've heard other people in the bereavement field rail against the idea of denial because most of the people we're talking to know that the person died. Like they're not in denial around that. There may be parts of their experience or parts of their emotions that they don't feel quite ready to look at or, or feel fully in this moment. It can also be used against people who are grieving, like somehow they're stuck or they have to just accept the death in order to move on. And in your experience, when you wrote about 
your miscarriage. You had a knowing that it was happening, but you were able to actually push that knowing aside or underground and not speak of it really to yourself or to other people. How do you think about denial now, two years later, in relation to your experience? Uh, Disturbing and scary, uh, just what the mind is capable of in order to kind of keep the organism moving forward, so to speak. You know, when I went through the traumas of my youth, I did what many of us did to cope. I just pushed everything down, pretended I was fine. And uh, at the time, I I thought I was dealing with the traumas occurring, and and I was on some level. However, I, I wasn't facing how I felt about the horrible things that were happening. I never rounded back to how I felt about any of that. So I already had a lot of repressed emotion. I think it was just a coping mechanism that became kind of this emotionally toxic habit that I held for like 25 years. And when the miscarriage happened, it came on the heels of a lot of other personal injury. I went through a few years of surgeries and then ended up wrecking my leg and having to learn how to walk again for a year. And then the miscarriage happened. And when the miscarriage happened, something truly disconcerting took place in my mind. And that is that I just blocked out the entire ordeal. Instead of pushing down how I felt about what was occurring, I blocked it out completely. I did know on some level what was happening, obviously, but I I just blocked it out and pretend it didn't happen. And it did the memory or the knowledge, I should say, that was inside of myself didn't surface for about a month. And, um, you know, it can be called denial. Uh, You know, psychologists call it dissociation. It's so many different things, but it was really just not being able to confront the emotional reality of what was happening. So I think you said it was about a month later when you, you do finally talk about it. Can you say a little bit about that night with your friend? Um, alcohol played a big role. Sadly, I mean, I don't know if I should be ashamed of that or not. I think that just helped the mind face whatever it needed to face in this case, the loss. And I was with a friend who I'd only known for about two months at the time, which is quite something to unload basically onto a new acquaintance. But (laughs) nice to meet you. Let me tell you my whole story. Yeah, here we go. I'm going to just, yeah. And, um, my friend's name is, is Mallory. And I don't know, I had other people around me that were supportive and who had proven their support to me. But there was something about Mallory that I just, she's a very dear friend. And I always know that there's no kind of judgment and that she'll understand me. She is a psychology major. She's very insightful when it comes to people. She's very emotionally aware. So I think something about her just invited that confession because I knew it was going to be a safe space with her. And it was. What was it like to say the word miscarriage out loud? Surreal, probably because my mind needed to disconnect from it in some way. We had had dinner and we were, you know, a few cocktails in and I just remember blurting it out. And then the reality of it didn't really hit me. And then probably about a half an hour later, I think I realized what I said and the meaning behind what I said. And then I instantly broke down to the point where we had to leave the restaurant and I had an office nearby. I I write about it in the book and just say I came undone and just curled up in the middle of the floor and just kind of lost it. And thankfully, Mallory stayed with me the entire night and never left. And I think that's a testament to, you know, friendship. And uh, especially in this case, you know, the friendship between women and what we can do for one another. And how she was able to be a container in that moment of coming undone. 
Yeah, I, I always say she was a tether tying me to this life still because I, at that point I came into a very dark space and so much trauma had happened in succession and I, I kind of was at my limit. Uh, I will be forever grateful to her. Almost as like anchoring some part of you here as the rest of you was delving into that pain. Mm, yeah, exactly. The other thing I was thinking a lot about as I sat with your book was the grief around a miscarriage and how there's something about that loss, particularly if the person who is having the miscarriage is the only one who may have any knowledge that a pregnancy exists, that there's something inherent in that that allows that grief to maybe become even more silent and more isolated. And there's a line you wrote from the the night when you and Mallory arrive in Taos, New Mexico, and you say, I slip beneath the wave of memories never made, but somehow held nonetheless. And I was just so taken by your way of describing imagining the future as also becoming a memory. You know, if someone dies and we spend our lives together, whether it's as a parent and a child or as partners or siblings or close friends, we have this balance of memories of the times we spent together and then also grief about the future occasions we won't share together. But in a miscarriage, there's no counterbalance. There's just the imaginings of the future. As you wrote about how you found a way to carry your twins with you into the now, how does that play out in this moment or in this time in your life? I didn't understand it at the time, but you know, like you say, it is about processing what you're not going to experience with someone. And in my case, it was it was grieving for the life not lived. It manifests itself in a number of ways. I have to give a, a big a big talk coming up. It's a TED talk, and it's kind of gotten me scared <laughs> because I can't imagine I mean, why that's there's you a know. difference. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a difference between. I mean, at some point, this was all forced down, and I couldn't even say the word miscarriage out loud. And you know, now it's going to be published in a book, and I was just kind of acclimating to that. And now I have to get up in front of, you know, the entire Yale student body and all of my colleagues and give this TED talk and say the whole story in front of a live crowd. So it's kind of a full circle moment. And uh, as I try to kind of pluck up the courage to do that, the twins have been in my mind a lot because in Western culture, there is no grief process for a miscarriage. In some Eastern cultures, there is, such as in Japan, there's a year of mourning, there's an actual grave site, it's recognized as a life lost. And giving the TED Talk, it's kind of like a moment for them and I, something that I can do in honor of what happened. So it's, you know, I carry them with me in my work. And then there's always the perpetual clock counting that hits me every now and then when I kind of do the math and think about how old they would be. And you can't get stuck in the what if, but at the same time, I don't think you can run away from it. And I think that's what I had to learn at the time. I just forced everything down after the miscarriage. And it's like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll deal with it. I've dealt with other things. You know, I'll move forward. But uh, you're never going to fully let it go. And I think it's a matter of coming to terms with that and finding a balance between grief and healing and being able to kind of think about the loss and not be totally dragged down by it. But it's just something that you kind of recognize and know is there and carry with you and try to honor in some way. That's so key, right? That idea of carrying it with you. And as you've talked about, there are days when it's immensely heavy and a days when it feels lighter and easier to carry rather than this idea of how do I eradicate this grief for myself? How do I no longer have it in any way? You write a lot about that idea of letting go and how for you that 
that didn't feel like a good fit in terms of a, a model or a concept for dealing with grief. Can you say a little more about the understanding you came to around that idea of needing to let go and that not being possible? Yeah, I think it was. I think it came to me at the time because I write about spiritual matters generally in my other books, and a lot of people like the term kind of let go or be dragged. And I was in therapy, and a lot of the therapists kept using the term let go, move on, you will be able to let go. My whole process of healing became centered around the ability or the inability to let go of what had happened. And, you know, when I couldn't, it felt like a failure. But then it was, you know, ultimately coming to the realization that you can't let it go and you're never going to get over it. I'm going to always carry this with me. And then it, it is a le- process of instead of letting go or shedding it or getting over it, it's, it is just learning how to carry it and not seeking those things that make me forget what happened, but things that kind of fortify me with the strength to bear the constant remembering because it, I'm not going to let it go. And I I do think, you know, you gain distance from it. When something bad happens, comes to bear, and it grinds us down, it's because we have no distance from it. And I think the further we get out and the more positive memories we make, they create distance between us and the pain. But you never let go of the loss or of what could have been or the person that you knew. And I, I think that the, the notion of just letting it go completely or getting it over completely, it's not realistic. It almost felt like another form of denial or repression. And that is what it made me unravel in the first place. So I just couldn't accept it. There's something really interesting of that, the way you frame the idea of fortifying yourself so that you are able to carry the loss with you rather than putting all of your energy and trying to get rid of the grief, you know, of, Yeah, I just love that idea of almost like a scale of like, how do I balance this out so that I have the emotional muscle and the emotional endurance to be both grieving and living and thriving at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like fate or what have you sets these burdens, you know, or these, it's not burdens, but sets these weights on us. And obviously, the longer we get through our life, the more we have on us and the harder it is some days. And, you know, I went through all the therapy in order to kind of shed these weights that all the loss and trauma was setting on me. And I couldn't, and I felt like I'd failed and, but it wasn't for lack of effort on my part. I was doing the work, so to speak, to process everything. And finally, I just came to the realization of, I have to fortify myself because things have come that are wearing on me. And it was just reframing the process. What are the things that you do in your life to help with that fortifying? Writing about it definitely helped. I think it's uncomfortable as it is to share such intimate things with people who don't know me. I think being able to make connections with people and have them know that they're not alone and I'm not alone and ridding ourselves of this terrible notion that we're alone in what we're going through has helped. It's helped to take something that was senseless and meaningless and transcend it into something of significance. And I think that that's really what helps. And you don't have to write a book in order to do that. You just have to not pretend that you're okay when you're not and and talk to the people around you. The conversations that are coming from it, I think, help fortify me. So not only the act of opening up, but then what you receive in return from other people. 
How about just on like the mundane day to day? Are there things you've discovered through this process that have been helpful for you? It's definitely more taking more time for self care. It's something I used to deny a lot before the miscarriage. I used to think that I could, I was kind of like Superman. I could handle anything and it would be fine. And uh, now I kind of, I know my emotional limits and I know the boundary work that I have to keep and the kind of space I have to hold for myself and things that I have to do that give me a calm. I think it's, it's just establishing peace and kind of defending it, defending those personal boundaries so that, you know, I can maintain a healthy balance in my emotions. Yeah, almost having to tend like a landscape of peace so that there is some place to come back to as you maybe step more into the chaos of traumas and day-to-day things that occur that are difficult. Exactly. I mean, when I when I thought about having to go out on speaking tours for this book, I thought, oh, it's going to be very emotionally draining because people will tell me their worst times. And they have. People who have thus far read the book have told me, you know, of very dark times, but it hasn't been emotionally draining at all. And I think I find the kind of tedious small talk where we're just talking about things that don't really matter, that is draining to me. But when you're talking about how you're feeling and, and grief and real experiences and real struggles, I find it rewarding. I've talked to so many people who, you know, they go through a really traumatic experience or they're dealing with grief and they're ruined for small talk, which makes, you know, sometimes meeting new people and going to parties and being social a little bit more treacherous. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think because when you face that kind of loss, there's an instant, you know, prioritization of what is important in life and what is not. And yeah, you have to be able to maintain social norms, but you definitely have less tolerance for those, giving attention to those things that don't really matter. And I found for me, at least, I just cultivate my listening skills so I can listen to other people's small talk without having to do much of it on my own. Listening is so key. And I really think, you know, on a larger scale, it's something that we're just hunger right now. I mean, I have those friends that I know when they're listening to me, like there's a silence that's captive. I know they're listening. Between being on our phones all the time and other distractions, we rarely give each other undivided attention. And I think especially when you're grieving, you need to know that you're heard. Yeah, heard and accepted and understood. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that that is one of the reasons why unconsciously I chose the friend that I did to kind of confide in because I know that I knew that she would hear me and accept it and, you know, embrace it and support it. Yeah, hopefully listeners out there have someone in their life who can be that good listener and really present with someone. As we get towards the end of our time together, I'm one other thing I was thinking about is your book is rooted so much in place. Do you have a sense of how place relates to or connects with your grief? I've been thinking about this actually a lot because um, actually this weekend I'm going to be going back out to the Southwest to the exact area where I wrote the book. I haven't been there since... For me, it was just a shift of horizon brought about a shift of mindset. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast. I had never been out to the West. And, you know, my friend Mallory, who I, I confided in that day, is from New Mexico. And she very adamantly said, you know, you, you need to go out West. And I was in the worst of it. And I was terribly depressed and kind of hopeless. She said, you, you know, let's go out West. You need to go out West. And she, she drove me out there kind of against my will almost. Like the wide open space it allowed my mind to breathe. 
and then seeing a different horizon, knowing that there are new things out there still to be experienced, it gave me hope on some subconscious level. You know, place plays a huge role in our mindset. I found myself traveling more. It's actually one of the things that's changed since the miscarriages. Now I take more time to travel and where I leave behind work and don't bring the laptop and just give myself space to breathe mentally. It just, it roots into everything really. And I, I didn't realize how much until I had that huge shift in landscape. And then I realized how much it intersected with my inner landscape. I must have underlined that phrase that you wrote that my mind could breathe about 20 times when I read it. So I was like, yes, exactly. We always think about breathing in our lungs, but like, when does your mind and your heart and your soul get to breathe and to be able to switch landscapes to help s- with switching of perspective? It's really powerful. Especially the, the wide open landscape. There was just something about it. I, I mean, I grew up on the ocean, so I've always had that kind of wide open blue horizon. But it was just something about going out west where it is desolate. So it, it in a way matched my mood of grief and, and hopelessness. But at the same time, in the desolation, there is just terrible beauty. And out there, the sky is really the ocean. That's the wide open horizon. It was just something about it that I needed. And I didn't know until I got out there. Yeah, I clearly remember when I came to the West Coast for the first time after growing up in Connecticut, I was like, oh, this is what it means to be able to see. Like, I can't see anything when I'm in Connecticut except for the trees that are right in front of me. So to be able to get that that vista and that perspective. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what Mallory said. <laughs> she, she lives in Connecticut <laughs> and she grew up in New Mexico and, and in the West. And she said the exact same thing. So your book is coming out on April 10th to lose the madness. Are there ways that readers can order it now or pre-order it? Pre-orders up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, it'll come out in paperback, uh, Kindle, and then we just did the audiobook, so the audiobook will be out as well. You can order them. Uh, I encourage you to go to your local indie bookstore, but it is available everywhere. Yeah, and I encourage anyone listening to please get a copy. This book really just made my mind hitch with breath. I was just so taken by it. And your TED Talk is happening in March? March 3rd at uh, Yale. But like with all TED Talks, it will be recorded and shared everywhere, which is both wonderful and terrifying. (laughs) At the same time. If listeners would like to learn more about you and your other writing, your poetry and your novel, The Cast Off Children, where's the best place for them to find out more? Probably my website at lmbrowning.com. Well, I will put that in our show notes as well. And Leslie, I just really want to thank you not only for writing the book that you wrote, sharing your story with the general public, but also being uh, on Grief Out Loud today and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. And I wish you the best with all of the going public that's coming. Thank you. And listeners out there, thanks for joining us today. If you would like to listen to any of our past episodes, you can find it at our website, dougy.org or iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any other platform you might use to listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.